Welcome to the Notorious Bakersfield Podcast. I'm Robert Peterson, and I'm here to tell you about some of Bakersfield's most notorious crimes, events, and characters that have made an impact on the Central California Valley community. Are you ready to hear a notorious Bakersfield story? Good. Let's get started. Welcome to the 12th episode of the Notorious Bakersfield podcast. If you want to be notified each time a new episode is released, remember to follow Notorious Bakersfield on your favorite podcast app. You can also listen to this podcast on NotoriousBakersfield.com. And don't forget to find our social media pages. Pictures related to each story will be posted on our Facebook page. The 1961 kidnapping, sexual assault, and murder of six-year-old Rosemary Riddle happened in Shafter, only 15 miles from Bakersfield. It was so horrific, news of the crime reverberated throughout the state of California like an earthquake. Families feared that if such an awful thing could happen in the small town of Shafter, it could happen in larger communities and cities too. 1961 was a period of innocence. Children could play outdoors without their parents fearing the unimaginable. That that innocence was lost for many with this horrific crime. The DeWitt Paradise Court labor camp was two miles north of Shafter. It was not paradise. It wasn't awful, but it wasn't paradise as the name describes. The people living in the camp were farm laborers. They were grateful for two things, having a job and having shelter for their families. The dozen or so dwellings that made up the camp were humble cottages. Each one was only two or three rooms. Two or three rooms, not two or three bedrooms. Living conditions were cramped for couples, but... Many of the people living there were families with two or three or more kids per family. The mulberry trees were plentiful and provided great shade, but the cottages were still hot in the summertime, and the mulberry trees lose their leaves in the fall and by winter serve absolutely no purpose whatsoever. It was Thursday, January 12, 1961. The United States had just elected a young new president that past November. Most of the country was anxiously awaiting President-elect John F. Kennedy's inauguration the next week. It was a normal day at the DeWitt Paradise Court labor camp. The afternoon sun had burned off that morning's thick, cold fog. When the school-aged children got home, they went into their family's cottages and ate an afternoon snack an apple or banana or cracker. Then their mothers shooed them outside to play. The cottages were much too small for kids to be playing inside. Occasionally, a grown-up would peek through a window to make sure the kids weren't getting into mischief. The cottages were set far enough away from Fresno Avenue that there wasn't a worry any of the kids would wander into the busy street. And if they did get too close, parents knew another adult would probably step in and get the kids away from the busy street. That's how things were at the DeWitt camp. All the residents knew each other, and they looked out for one another. Everyone living there was in the same boat. Nobody was wealthy, and each family was just doing their best with what they had. The Riddle family had only been living at the DeWitt labor camp for about a month. 
Everett Riddle, his wife Ethel, and two daughters, Janet Sue, age seven, and Rosemarie, age six, moved to the camp from Chandler, Arizona. Everett Riddle had brought his family to Shafter because he'd been told there were better employment opportunities in California's Central Valley. The dusty driveway that looped through the camp's cottages and leafless mulberry trees wasn't used much in the afternoon. Most of the adults were out in the fields working. It wasn't unusual for a stranger to drive through, but it wasn't common either. If an outsider visited the camp, they were there for a reason. At about 4.45 p.m., a black, early 1950s model Chevrolet with out-of-state plates drove into the DeWitt camp. Car pulled up to a group of kids playing. A heavy-set woman with dark hair opened the passenger side door and got out. The man behind the wheel had curly, dark hair and stayed in the car. The woman approached the kids to ask if any of them would be interested in helping her clean her apartment. She'd been ill and couldn't do her chores. She was willing to pay any volunteer a dollar. After not getting any takers from the group, a girl standing by herself, away from the other kids, caught the woman's attention. The girl was about six years old. She wore two barrettes in her blonde hair and was wearing a black and white checkered dress. Over that dress, she wore two sweaters to ward off the January cold. One was blue and the other was green. The woman approached the girl. Would she be interested in earning a dollar? Well, the girl said yes, but she'd have to check with her mother. Excited with the prospect of earning a dollar, the young girl ran to her family's cottage to ask her mother's permission. Seeing how excited her doctor daughter was and thinking the offer came from a neighbor in the camp, the mother gave her permission on one condition. She had to be home before dark. That would have only given her less than an hour. Rosemary Riddle ran back out to the woman and climbed in the back seat of the stranger's car. When Rosemary wasn't home by 6.40 p.m., that's when Ethel Riddle frantically called the Kern County Sheriff's Office. By dawn the next morning, sheriff's deputies were combing the area by foot and patrol car, looking for Rosemary. An all-points bulletin was issued for the abductors with a description of the car, the suspects, and the missing girl. A big concern was a medical condition Rosemary suffered. She had a congenital heart malady that caused her to faint as she became overly excited. The afternoon after the kidnapping, Everett and Ethel Riddle spoke to the media to plead to whoever abducted their daughter. Please don't hurt her. I want my baby, the mother cried. She has a fragile heart, they begged. A break in the case came on Saturday, January 14th. A Shafter resident told law enforcement officers that he had seen and talked to an old acquaintance named Richard Lindsay about an hour before the abduction. Lindsay and his wife Dixie were driving a black, early 1950s Chevy with Texas license plates. At 4.30 a.m. January 15th, just three days after the abduction, 
California Highway Patrol officers near Livermore, California, spotted a parked vehicle matching the description of the car Rosemary had entered. When officers approached the vehicle, they discovered two individuals inside. Shining their flashlights into the car, they could see a man asleep in the front seat and a woman, half awake and sobbing, in the back seat. The officers drew their service weapons and knocked on the window. Who are you? the officer demanded. Groggy and waking up, the man responded, Richard Lindsay. The interior of the vehicle was trashed. Clothing was mixed with food wrappers and empty bottles of alcohol. It was obvious the couple was either camping or living in the car. The CHP officers detained the couple. Searching the vehicle, they discovered blood stains on the front passenger seat. Upon further investigation, amongst the trash, a barrette was discovered in the back seat. Richard Lindsay, age 30, and his wife Dixie Lindsay, age 26, were taken to the Alameda County Jail, and Kern County officials were notified. Investigators determined Richard Lindsay had a lengthy criminal record in several different states. Another shocking discovery was made. Dixie Lindsay was not just heavy set. She was seven months pregnant. Later that day, under intense questioning by Kern County detectives, Dixie Lindsay was the first to crack. She confessed to kidnapping Rosemary, but said her husband Richard murdered the girl. She told detectives that after picking up Rosemary, they drove to Wasco and got hamburgers. As they drove down Highway 466, now 46, the little girl began to cry. Dixie slapped her, then told her husband that he may as well get it over with. The couple drove the girl to Blackwell's Corner, then into an isolated field. That's where Rosemary was raped, choked, bludgeoned with a tire iron, and her body was left. With this confession, detectives loaded Dixie up in, and drove her to Blackwell's Corner to search for the missing girl's body. While Dixie was being transported to Blackwell's Corner, detectives confronted Richard Lindsay with the information they already knew. He soon broke down and confessed too, but he claimed it was Dixie who bludgeoned Rosemary with the tire iron, not him. By the time the search party reached Blackwell's Corner, the sun was setting and the Central Valley fog began rolling in. The search was delayed until the next morning. On January 17, 1961, little Rosemary Riddle's lifeless body was found in a secluded field east of Blackwell's Corner. Nearby was a blood-stained tire iron. News of Rosemary's kidnapping and murder made headlines across the country. The senseless killing of such a young girl sparked both outrage and sympathy for the family. From all over, people wanted to show their compassion. So the Shafter Junior Women's Club established the Rosemary Riddle Memorial Fund. The money raised would go to the Riddle family. Within days, the fund raised over $5,000. You, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, do solemnly swear... I, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, do solemnly swear that you will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. That I will faithfully execute the office 
of President of the United States. And will, to the best of your ability, and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help you God. So help me God. Friday, January 20th, 1961, should have been a proud day for Bakersfield and Kern County. United States Supreme Court Chief Justice Earl Warren, a product of Kern Union High School, administered the presidential oath of office to President John F. Kennedy. While the world was focused on the inauguration in Washington, D.C., Kern County was preoccupied with the Rosemary Riddle case. Richard Lindsay's preliminary hearing was scheduled for that morning in Bakersfield, and his victim's funeral was scheduled for that afternoon in Shafter. When Richard Lindsay appeared in the Kern County Superior Court that morning, to most people's surprise, he waived his right to a preliminary hearing and entered a plea of guilty to both the kidnapping and murder charges. This plea would either mean the admitted killer would spend the rest of his life in prison or he'd be executed. The sentencing hearing date was set for the following week. Later that afternoon was Rosemary's funeral. The Shafter Mennonite Brethren Church the largest church in Shafter, could seat 500, far less than the throng of mourners who showed up. With the church at capacity, hundreds stood outside. It's estimated that over 1,500 people in total paid their respects. The service at the church lasted over two and a half hours. When it was time to transport the casket to the Shafter Cemetery, the procession consisted of over 300 cars. Public outrage was so strong leading up to Richard Lindsay's sentencing hearing that Superior Court Judge William Bradshaw implemented an unusual security me measure. Judge Bradshaw ordered deputies to frisk and search court spectators for weapons before allowing them into the courtroom. After reviewing the evidence and listening to testimony, Judge Bradshaw sentenced Richard Lindsay to death for the slaying of Rosemary Riddle. Dixie Lindsay's attorney's legal maneuvering drug on. Her late-term pregnancy was another factor in delaying the criminal case against her. Then, after being transferred from her jail cell to the Kern General Hospital, Dixie Lindsay gave birth to her fourth child on March 21st. It was determined that Dixie Lindsay's mother would care for the newborn pending the outcome of Dixie's criminal trial. Finally, the first week of May, the process of selecting a jury was underway. The media coverage of this crime was so intense and personal opinions so strong, finding 12 impartial jurors proved difficult. It took a week and a half for all parties to agree on a jury panel. Then, on May 15th, as Dixie Lindsay was to go to trial for the kidnapping and murder of Rosemary Riddle, the defendant changed her plea from not guilty to guilty. The judge sentenced Dixie Lindsay to one life sentence for each count, making her eligible for parole after seven years. 
The California Supreme Court upheld Richard Lindsay's death sentence, and Governor Edmund Brown declined to intervene. Ten months after the slaying of six-year-old Rosemary Riddle, Richard Lindsay was put to death in San Quentin's gas chamber. His wife and partner in crime, Dixie Lindsay, after serving 11 years in prison, was paroled. This is where things get interesting and complicated. In July 1962, almost a year and a half after Rosemary's death, Ethel Riddle, Rosemary's mother, applied for support for her surviving daughter, Janet Sue, from Everett. Ethel Riddle notified the failure to provide department with the, at the DA's office that she and Everett Riddle had been divorced in Arizona in November 1957, over three years before Rosemary's death. So that doesn't make it any less tragic. It's just a interesting little bit of trivia about this case. Everett Riddle pleaded guilty to the charge of failure to provide and was sentenced to one year in jail. However, that sentence was suspended for three years if he paid the back child support he owed. In 1974, Everett Riddle passed away from a drowning at Thomas Hill Lake in Missouri. Rosemary's mother, Ethel, she passed away in 2014. Her obituary stated she was preceded in death by two daughters, Rosemary and Janet Sue. And then this little twist in October 1963, the DeWitt Paradise Court labor camp was the site of another child abduction and rape. This time, the kidnapper spared his 11-year-old victim's life, but it was a tragic event nonetheless. Today, the DeWitt Paradise labor camp is no more. The section where the Riddles lived in 1961 is now single-family residence. A portion of the camp is still standing next door. The cottages look very similar to how they looked in 1961. Resources used for this story were the Bakersfield Californian, the Los Angeles Times, the Associated Press, uh, UPI, United Press International, Ancestry.com, and FindAGrave.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Notorious Bakersfield Podcast. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for future stories, I welcome feedback. You can email me at NotoriousBakersfield at gmail.com. Until next Tuesday, have a great week.